Welcome to Parley, the Hindus' weekly discussion podcast, where we get experts to weigh in on the major news issues of the day. On January 12 this year, the Supreme Court stated the implementation of three controversial farm laws passed in September 2020 and ordered the constitution of a committee of experts to negotiate between the farmers' bodies and the government of India. Rather than deliberating on the constitutionality of the three laws, the court appears to be trying to move some of the parties towards a political settlement. Arguably, in doing so, it is wading into the domain of the government. Has the court in this case abdicated its constitutional duty mandated by the constitution? And is this a growing trend? I discussed this question with Anuj Bhuvanya, professor at the Jindal Global Law School, and Arun Thiruvanganam. Professor of Law at Azim Premji University, Bangalore. Anuj and Arun, if you will uh, excuse the informal address, thank you for joining us today and making time for the Hindus Pali podcast. Thank you, Jayant. Thank you, Jayant. It's a pleasure to be part of it. Right. So uh, let's just dive into it. Uh, so I'm going to ask a question that's that I'm going to put to you both, and uh, we can decide who takes that first. So in the present instance of the court staying the farm laws and forming a committee to break the deadlock between farmers and government um what do you really stands out as problematic about this particular intervention um i think anuj i'll throw that out to you first yeah um now what's really striking about the court's intervention here is that nobody asked the the court to intervene it uh, intervene in this matter in uh, in this particular manner i mean nobody really asked you to break the dead, deadlock uh, as the court itself noted on its 12th january order there are three sets of petitions one is challenging the constitutionality of the of the laws um and the amendments uh, second is in favor of the laws intervening in favor of the laws and third is um uh, you know with regard to um the the protests you know by uh, petitions filed by uh, residents Uh, uh with regard to breaking the the, the protest now uh none of them as you would notice uh, is really asking the court to break any deadlock with regard to negotiating between uh, the two parties uh, all of them are challenging um, you know are, are making legal uh, uh, interventions one is saying that the that the, that the laws are itself, itself in unconstitutional others are talking about the, the, the protest now the court has repeatedly um uh said in fact in its oral um um oral uh, inter- uh, you know um co- comments that um that uh, it it views the protests as as completely legal it it sees these protests as uh, you know uh, as part of exercise of citizens rights under article 19 um and it has also said that with regard to protests the police alone can take a call with regard to the security aspect etc so so what we see is that the court is not even uh framing this the, the the case before it in legal terms at all right it's it's uh it's kind of bracketed the the, the legal questions with regard to the constitutionality of the laws or of the protest in fact it's it's clearly not particularly interested in 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 the legality of either of them but it has still gone ahead and intervened in this manner um you know asking uh, in, uh, noting that the government has not been particularly successful in negotiating with with, with the farmers groups and uh, decided that it can do better than the government and uh, appointed its own committee so what we see is that um so what's what's really striking in this case the case is that the, the court is just not interested in framing the case before it in legal terms 
uh, and doesn't seem to be particularly exercised about it. And um, um, it's basically ignored the kind of the, the, the legal questions that might have been posed by the various petitions before it. Right. Um, Arun, do you want to also just jump in on, on that? Uh, thanks, Jeff. Yeah, I, I, I broadly agree with uh, uh, Anuj's uh, response, and this is what most commentators uh, have also pointed out. Uh, just to take a step back and, and let's uh, look at this idea of uh, judicial review, right? I mean, uh, in the long span of history, it's still a relatively recent idea. I mean, we, we still trace the power of courts uh, to strike down parliamentary law uh, to, uh, you know, 1803, uh, the famous decision of the U.S. Supreme Court in Marbury versus Madison. Uh, and in, in the sort of long history of uh, political theory, uh, they, it, this is still seen as a controversial idea. Right? And uh, that's what we're discussing. When can a court intervene uh, when a democratically elected parliament has has passed laws? Right? And, and so conventional theory that uh, courts must be very careful. This is a very uh, high power, which they must exercise with restraint and only when it is merited. Uh, so conventionally, the idea was when, when somebody raises that kind of a petition alleging fundamental rights violation, uh, the court can only say yes or no, right? There's no option of maybe, uh, and the court is not supposed to say, oh, why don't you pass this law in this way and that may be better, right? So the way we've tried to uh, keep uh, the principles of judicial review clear is to say that courts can uh, uh, strike down laws made by parliaments and congresses, but they must have very clear reasons for doing it. And those reasons are to be found in the text of the constitution, uh, in um, principles which have been derived over the years by courts. So uh, when um, uh, Anuj says that the legal reasons don't stand out, um, as he mentioned, so if you look at the order of January 12th, they do mention that there are three categories of petitions. But what is striking is they don't even set out clearly what are the grounds of challenge, right? When they say that there's one group of petitions which challenge the constitutional validity in para three, they just make a tangential reference uh, to entry 33, uh, but they don't actually say that the petitions which challenge the constitutional validity of the farm bills are doing it on the question of legislative competence. So specifically, they are arguing, uh, and I'm relying on the Bharatiya Kisan uh, Party's petition, which says very clearly that uh, under our constitutional scheme, uh, the uh, agriculture, farm produce, these are matters reserved under entries 14, 18, 30. There are a number of those entries under uh, list two of the seven schedule, which lays out what are the uh, issues on which state legislatures are competent uh, to enact law. So that's the specific legal and constitutional question uh, that the Bharti Kisan Party uh, uh, raises before the court. So courts are, of course, competent to issue stays. Uh, but when you look at the reasoning given by uh, Chief Justice Bogde's bench, uh, in paragraph 8, they say, we are also of the view that a stay of implementation of all the three farm laws for the present may assuage the hurt feelings of the farmers and encourage them to come to the negotiative, uh, negotiating table with confidence and good faith, unquote. Now, this is a very strange reason. This is precisely what Anuj uh, is also hinting at. Um, because the legal reason for staying the implementation of the laws could be that uh, we think that there is uh, prima facie merit, that is merit on the face of it, because these uh, laws do impact uh, agriculture, farm produce, 
uh, and other issues which are reserved for state legislature. So there's this question of how can parliament uh, enact this. Now that's that's a valid reason to give to say we we think that this needs further exploration and we are staying the order until the government uh, lawyers can uh, uh, persuade us that the parliament actually has competence to do it. The stated reason for uh, in, uh, staying the implementation. Uh, quote, assuaging the hurt feelings of farmers is a very strange reason. Also, because uh, it's not just the protesting farmers on the Delhi borders uh, whose uh, constitutional interests are affected. Right? This goes to uh, farmers across the country and arguably it goes to the federal nature uh, of our constitution, which is very much a topic which has been uh, in debate during the pandemic. Um, so in, in that sense, I guess uh, what is puzzling about the stated reasons for staying the order and exercising this very high power of, um, you know, saying that what Parliament has said, um, we are going to uh, uh, get into whether it is uh, validly enacted law or not. Uh, this reason seems uh, puzzling at the very least. So just to uh, just to kind of draw you out on that, I think we've covered some of these points in your previous answer as well. But, you know, there is this debate about the court's power to stay laws passed by parliament, as you pointed out. Um, so just to sort of draw on one specific point, what is the difference between deliberating on the constitutionality of a law and debating on the merits or, you know, otherwise of a law, which the court seems to have basically done here? So just to follow up on what I was saying earlier, um, uh, you raise a good question, right? And so uh, where is the, the divide between law and politics uh, to be uh, drawn? That's always a hard question. But let me try and uh, first respond uh, in the context of the farm bills, right? Um, so uh, as I was saying, uh, there are uh, obviously uh, economic questions which go to uh, the minimum support price, uh, the APMC scheme, and how that is to be done. Those are matters of uh, economic policy. Uh, and, and that is really uh, something which um, and I think the government's justification has been that this has been debated for a long time, right? and, which is, of course, true. Um, but what is uh, certainly worrying is that that debate did not occur in parliament, even though it has happened in policy circles uh, for a while. Uh, yesterday, uh, Montek Singh Aluwalia gave a talk uh, at, at Manthan. And what was very interesting about it is he was asked about the farm bills. Uh, and uh, given Mr. Aluwalia's um, sort of uh, approach to this, uh, he said, look, I, I generally in favor uh, of, of markets being allowed to enter domains. And he said uh, th there was debate even in earlier governments about um, these farm bills. But he said what was uh, a question that worried us when we were formulating and, and thinking of policy in relation to agriculture was the, the legal and constitutional question of who has the competence to bring about that policy, right? So um, that brings me back to what I was saying earlier that there are, of course, policy questions involved, which uh, lawyers and judges are uh, frankly not, not particularly good at understanding even, right, grappling with them. Um, so in the specific case of the farm bills, I think the, the legal and constitutional question uh, is who has the competence to enact this policy, right? Uh, it, I think people have made a persuasive case uh, in the petitions and, and in the commentary on uh, the January 12th order that there is a very good case to be made that that uh, under a constitutional scheme, uh, that, that power to make that policy is reserved to state governments, right? So I would say that's a legal and constitutional question that the uh, court has to absolutely grapple with. 
What we find in the order is that they are concerned with MSP and whether that will continue or not. Uh, those are considerations which might weigh in the mind of a court uh, when it stays the implementation. But at the very least, what they are required to do is give us legal grounds uh, which persuade them to do it. And um, I guess what we are suggesting is uh, assuaging the hurt feelings of protesting farmers uh, is not a legal ground, right? That's why I think some commentators have said, are you wading into uh, administrative matters, right? And, um, and, and just on right. that question, I mean, just yesterday, the Supreme Court told the Delhi police uh, that this question of whether uh, the tractor protest should be allowed or not is a law and order question. That's for you to deal with. Don't come to us. This seems particularly strange because uh, the, the question of the protesting farmers at the current moment is also a question that uh, the, the law and order authorities have to deal with. Right. So um, it seems to me that the, the bench is being inconsistent uh, in how it is approaching these questions in, in two matters that are being heard concurrently. Right. Um, Anuj, uh, your views on this? Yeah, so on the question of stay again, just to second what Arun is saying, uh, it's now, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's well known that, uh, you know, uh, there is ordinarily, of course, a presumption of constitutionality, as the Attorney General pointed out uh, during the hearing on, on 12th, uh, and that was noted in the order as well. Um, but uh, but uh, uh, while the presumption holds, uh, the court is free to stay uh, a, a validly passed law as long as it feels there is a kind of a prima prima facie case made out against the um, against the constitutionality and in fact the court itself noted uh, on in its order that you know it gave the precedent of the the recent uh, uh, stay passed by the supreme court in the maratha reservation case right where um, that particular um, you know uh, uh, order was stayed uh, uh, by the court now the interesting thing is that while the court gave that precedent the, the 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 Maratha reservation order was actually um, I mean the, the stay was actually on constitutional ground on the ground of uh, of prima facie uh, constitutionality right uh, but here as as Arun just said the 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 ground uh, in the order the the reasoning given by the order uh, does not make any such constitutional issues at all in fact as Arun said there are there are good constitutional grounds uh, which have been uh, which have been um, pleaded before the court by the by the farmers associations uh, that is uh, grounds of uh, federalism that you know that agriculture being a uh, state list issue etc that the center is legislating on it as well as the question of um, the voice vote the manner in which the uh, the voice vote was passed in the Rajya Sabha um, to put it mildly were, were controversial and leading to to complex constitutional questions. The court did not go into any of them, which could have been adequate for it to stay, uh, you know, um, the, 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 the laws for, for, uh, for, for a while uh, until it adjudicated upon them. But the court did not do that. Instead, it gave this strange uh, reasoning of, of assuaging farmers' guilt, etc. Now, which is, of course, um, devoid of any, um, you know, <laughs> there's, no, there's nothing legal about uh, the court's reasoning there. Um, so, you know, this is another of those instances where the court is unable or, uh, or, un, or uninterested in translating what, uh, you know, uh, translating issues in, in legal terms, uh, even if, uh, I mean, political questions can be adjudicated by the court as long as the court uh, does the minimal, uh, you know, uh, adjudicated labor of, of translating, uh, uh, you know, those issues in legal terms. The court does not seem to be particularly bothered with that here. Okay. Yeah. Right. So, um, Anuj, I'm just going to uh, just pan out a little bit more broadly and just expand the scope of this discussion because this kind of really brings us into uh, the heart of what uh, 
you know, when we're debating judicial overreach or debating questions about the judiciary encroaching into the powers of the executive, I think we need to sort of uh, make the question more broad. Um, so is there a case for the Supreme Court or high courts for that matter being more proactive in matters of uh, of governance, of politics? Because in one sense, um, in in perception also, they are meant to act as a check on uh, government and, and to power. So um, can they? how can they effectively perform the function of this check on the power of government without this accusation of judicial overreach? And, you know, I, I know that you've written a lot on, um, on TILs particularly, and perhaps you can just bring some of that understanding and perspective to this question. You know, Jens, we live in a country where almost every political issue gets uh, rapidly trans- uh, translated in legal terms. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Um, um, in fact, it's, it's, it's the, what we see at this point with regard to the court is not just a, 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 you know, a problem of, of commission, as like in the farm's order, uh, uh, the farm laws order, um, but as well as the prom- what we see here is, is, a, is a striking problem of omission. Um, now, there are issues which are which are central to Indian politics, um, uh, which could be called, you know, issues of mega politics, really, um, you know, uh, matters such as uh, the unilateral change by the uh, the central government to the Constitution of Kashmir, uh, you know, Article 370, uh, the Citizenship Amendment Act, demonetization, uh, reservation quotas for, uh, for economically weaker sections, um, electoral bond. These are all cases, in, and more recent, most recently, the uh, the, the so-called uh, um, Lab Jihad laws, laws really, uh, and demiscegenation laws from from UP that were passed. Now, all of them are pending before co- before the court, and all of them are um, are obviously extremely uh, politically controversial. Now, what is striking about all of them uh, is also that the court has shown no urgency in hearing any of them. Uh, the court has, in fact, refused to pass a stay order. Uh, uh, in any of them, in spite of the fact that uh, the petitions challenging the constitutionality make um, reasonably good constitutional um, arguments in favor of, uh, you know, that this one could definitely argue in many of these instances that a prima facie case uh, has been made for stay. Uh, so, so what I'm trying to say is that what we have, a, what we have a situation of right now in India is that the court is in fact not acting as a check on the power of government. Um, with regard to you know uh, it's it's uh, with regard to the laws that are being passed as well as executive orders that are being issued um, and in, uh, as, so i gave the example of all these laws but of course there are also executive orders like habeas corpus petitions are pending against series of detention orders uh, in particularly in jammu and kashmir but also in in in, in up um, um, so so the court has shown no urgency uh, in in intervening in them um, so, you know, it's not a question of uh, the fact that, so it seems like the court is in fact very, uh, is, uh, is, the court is in fact um, not interested in, 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 in wading in these issues, which are, which are of course political, but they're also of utmost constitutional importance. Um, on the other hand, of course, the court has uh, uh, very much intervened in, in matters uh, which are extremely controversial, like, uh, of course, most, uh, most obviously the Ayodhya uh, case. And the court has, um, you know, um, you know, acted reasonably fast by by, by judicial standards in, in giving that judgment. Uh, you know, within 
you know, few, few months of, of hearing, etc. So, so what we see is that um, the court is actually acting in ways which is abdicating its constitutional responsibility of judicial review. At the same time, it's acting in usurpation of executive and legislative powers. So, you know, so the court is not only not acting judicially as uh, empowered to do so by the constitution, but the court is acting in 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 in, in ways which are uh, which are well certainly beyond uh, you know standard ideas of of, of judicial uh, uh, behavior. That is, uh, you know, for instance, in this case. So, so what we see really is, uh, like I said, a problem of both uh, omission as well as commission uh, in uh, with our, respect to our Supreme Court. Right. Um, Arun, do you want to come in on this sure. as well? Sure. Um, and maybe since Anuj has already addressed um, the Indian um, um, sort of dimension of this, let me take a slightly uh, broader view, right? And uh, as I was alluding earlier, um, this question of, uh, you know, the, the accusation of judicial overreach, as you describe it, uh, is a phenomenon that has been observed uh, in, in multiple uh, contexts, right? I mean, let's also remember that right. this whole idea that judges... Uh, can exercise such powers to overturn democratically elected uh, uh, governments and, and their decisions uh, in parliaments and Congress through statutes uh, is still, although we can trace it back to 1803, it's really in the post-World War II era that this becomes a, a, a you know, dominant uh, sort of phenomenon around the world. Right? Um, so just looking at that question uh, of judicial overreach, uh, I think we need to recognize that um, there have been many advances made. So I, I told you the traditional theory was that the courts can only uh, sort of give yes or no answers, right? They can be, uh, it's almost like a, a red light uh, or a green light. But um, there have been a lot of innovations uh, in, in that respect, if you look at other countries. So for instance, let me give you the example from South Africa, uh, where uh, their, their final constitution, which was adopted in 1996, has a very interesting provision uh, in section 172, uh, where they they sort of uh, adapt this red light green light approach, and then they say that uh, actually courts can enter into uh, almost a dialogue with legislatures, right? So they can they can sort of point out that uh, a law that you have passed is inconsistent with the constitution uh, to a particular extent, and then section one seventy two empowers the court to issue an order suspending the declaration of invalidity for any period so as to allow the competent authority to correct the defect. Right? Um, so you can send it back to parliament and say, this law is broadly okay, but this is the part of it that we don't like. Uh, and uh, this is, raises constitutional questions. Do you want to reconsider it? Right? Now, this goes against the conventional theory that uh, courts can only say yes or no, because there's almost a process of dialogue happening between uh, the court uh, and, and the legislature. Right? And, and there have been several uh, such examples. So uh, particularly in the Canadian context, uh, th there's been this uh, idea of judicial dialogue, uh, where courts see themselves as sort of allies of uh, executive uh, and, and parliamentary authorities in attaining constitutional goals. Uh, in India, actually, historically, we've gone much further. Right? So we have a, a, a constitution which is uh, of the Westminster uh, uh, type, where really parliament's uh, authority in the Westminster system uh, and in the UK today, uh, even today, uh, parliament has, has much greater power, uh, which 
uh, than, than in certain other systems, right? So when we adopted our constitution in 1950, we made departures from that idea of parliamentary sovereignty and we gave uh, courts power. And courts in India have historically struggled with that power and how to make sense of it. Uh, but they have, you know, in, always from 1950 all the way till about 2015, you could see that the power of judges has, has increased. And you can look at it across various areas, right? So, so to give you an example, take presidential pardons, which is very much in the news now when you're looking at the United States and uh, Trump has issued these pardons and people are sort of thinking, wow, can you do that? Can an executive authority just use the pardoning power uh, whichever way they want? In India, actually, the courts have built in some safeguards for the exercise of pardoning power, which is seen as a classic case where the executive has unrivaled authority. Right? So through a series of cases, there's been attempts to bring checks. So Anuj talked about the checking function of courts. So if you see pardoning power, there's been an evolution of that over time. If you look at other areas, so you take, for instance, uh, the power of Article 356, so this was a power in the constitution where if you just read the text, you could say, oh, when the governor sends a report to the president that president's rule is uh, required, then that's something that the courts simply cannot go through, right? Because that's that's something for the executive uh, government to do. But through creative interpretation, in, in particularly in the Bombay case, uh, the courts have come up with this way of trying to also impose uh, certain procedural safeguards and certain other sort of reasonable requirements uh, in that. So that's been the sort of gradual uh, evolution of the law where courts have through creative use uh, of uh, interpretive techniques, looking at the text and saying, well, this is required. Right? One last instance, uh, and this is actually very bold and audacious, particularly going to your question about when can courts interfere where parliaments have authority. So you take a, a, a couple of cases from the early 2000s. This is the Association of Democratic Reforms case in 2002 and the follow-up case of PUCL in 2003. Uh, so this, the issue here was uh, electoral uh, uh, corruption, right? where people, uh, their uh, antecedents, uh, whether they have a criminal background, whether that should be uh, made known to voters. Uh, so if you look at these two cases, very interesting how basically the Supreme Court virtually forces parliament to pass a law along the terms that it thinks fit, uh, which is quite interesting. And it really takes your conventional understanding of, no, no, there are certain areas where parliament has exclusive authority uh, and, and uh, turns that theory on its head in some way, because the court steps in and says, uh, people, voters have a right to information and parliament has no incentive to do this because, uh, you know, parliament is run by political parties, which have certain interests uh, to, to protect. And, and they basically, uh, you know, strong arm parliament uh, into passing this law uh, according to what they think will further citizens' interests, right? So these are all the precedents we have. All this leads to the Indian Supreme Court being de described very routinely as the world's most powerful court. But all that, uh, as Anuj is suggesting, um, from certainly from 2017 onwards, uh, you could say that there's been a real change in that, right? Where, uh, and, and, and what, what he calls uh, omission and commission, you can think of it as a double movement, right? Uh, all the cases that he said where there were legal and constitutional questions raised, the court simply has not uh, taken on those uh, questions at all. And uh, Anuj used the word uh, abdication. I think that's a fair way of describing what has happened uh, in the cases relating to the challenges to demonetization, GST, uh, Article 370, 
CAA, uh, the, the electoral bonds case, right? Uh, and parallelly, what is troubling is, as Anuj is suggesting, uh, the court is going into uh, issues where it is really questionable whether they should do that, right? So you take the Kashmir case and disappointing of committees, right? which is also what has been done in the farm bills case. Uh, this goes beyond uh, the conventional understanding of the role of the judge. Uh, there are precedents for this in India, but we've learned a lot about where these committees work and, and where they can be effective. What the court seems to be doing either in the Kashmir case or now in this case of the farm bills uh, is, is frankly quite worrying because as we have said, there are no reasons given, reasons grounded in, in law. Right? So when you ask how can we prevent judicial overreach, the classic understanding of that is that judiciaries derive their legitimacy uh, from the power of the reasoning in their judgments. Right. So they have to stipulate what are the grounds for which, uh, on which they base whatever actions uh, they are asking the uh, executive and legislative authorities to undertake. And that reasoning has to be uh, very clearly specified in ways that not just lawyers, even non-lawyers can understand. Right? They have to be grounded in the text of our constitution, in, in um, precedence of the court, in, in arguments of prudence, uh, of logic, of reasoning. Uh, and as, as both Anuj and I are suggesting, certainly in the January 12th order, uh, there doesn't seem to be uh, really that kind of reasoning available, which is why I think we are seeing uh, the uh, arguments about overreach. Uh, so, you know, I, I said uh, earlier, I read out para uh, 12, where they talk about um, um, assuaging hurt feelings. If you look at para 15, uh, this is what the court says, and, and I'll quote it. While we may not stifle a peaceful protest, we think that this extraordinary order of stay of implementation of the farm laws will be perceived as an achievement of the purpose of such protest, at least for the present, and will encourage the farmers' bodies to convince their members to get back to their livelihood. Uh, now, you know, with, with respect, this seems uh, sort of a reasoning based on some emotion and some kind of sympathy for protesting farmers. But this is very odd in a legal uh, order where you have to stipulate legal reasons for it. Right? Uh, and as Anuj has, has indicated, there are very good legal reasons that the court could have used uh, to advance uh, justification for the stay. These seem very strange reasons. Uh, and, and I think that's what both Anuj and I are finding quite uh, bewildering about, about the logic employed here. Uh, just to add, you know, uh, the, usually when we talk about the Supreme Court, we, we say that, uh, you know, in the initial few decades, it was a more conservative court and then it became more radical over a period of time. But even if you look at the first, the so-called conservative period, you know, if you look at the big political issue, the big ticket political issue of the last few decades or the first decades after independence, you know, land reforms, reservations, the use of Article 356, bank nationalization, privy purses, these are all issues on which the court actually adjudicated pretty promptly. I mean, not necessarily in ways that, you know, many of us may agree with or, you know, many of us may disagree with the decisions also. But the point is that the court didn't shy away from giving its opinion on 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 these big political uh, issues, which were, of course, very much legal issues as well. But what we started saying, seeing recently is that the court is very uh, varied on, on, almost of, 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 of giving its um, decision on the constitutional challenges to, to similarly politically controversial moves. And that's quite unfortunate because that's precisely what the court's primary job is as a constitutional court. 
so then um, so my final question um, can we can we point out instances in which the court has played a positive role in protecting or advancing the rights of various groups uh, in some cases perhaps even taking up issues before the executive could come to them sort of acting in this kind of prescient manner has the has the manner in which the court has done so actually changed over the years we have spoken uh, over the past answers about how the role of the court has changed uh, particularly in the last few years in in the way that they address these issues um i don't perhaps you want to take that first sure um so uh, as as we've been saying uh, the, the justification for courts to take up uh, these cases the classic justification is uh, the protection uh, of a group which cannot prevail uh, in uh, the the sort of majoritarian system of elections right so elections are fundamentally um, uh, majoritarian systems Uh, and and the classic justifications in constitutional theory for why why should you allow judiciaries to intervene one of the classic justifications is uh, this idea of uh, court should play a counter majoritarian role right uh, so to give you and since you asked for specific instances i think a classic instance where the court fairly recently uh, um, was seen as performing that role is in the navtej uh, johar case right so uh, which which uh, as as you know relates to the question uh, of lgbtq uh, and and was specifically on the question of decriminalization uh, of um, uh, section 377 uh, and the prohibition on um, uh, same sex relations uh, uh, not just prohibition criminalization right so this was a issue that uh, the indian courts actually grappled with uh, for a fairly long time uh these are the kind of uh, difficult issues which affect uh, uh directly a, a relatively small group right so the argument that uh, how would you do this democratically we know that lgbtq populations and any human population are going to be a fairly small number so for them to run a political campaign uh, and and get it through parliament was going to be difficult and we saw that in india that the first uh petition uh, for this was raised in the delhi high court in the early 90s uh, and it took a long while for even the courts uh, to to come around it uh, as we know uh, the the delhi high court finally in 2009 sort of stepped in but then that was overturned by the supreme court in 2013 and it's only in 2018 that the court the supreme court gave a ringing uh, sort of endorsement to uh some of the logic that the delhi high court had used in 2009 right so that's a classic area where you could look at a, a discrete and insular minority to use the terms used by uh, the american supreme court right that's that's one classic uh, area where you could do that but courts in india have actually gone uh, beyond that and if you look at the uh, the the phase throughout the 1990s um the, the supreme court has also intervened uh, for uh, other groups of people right so the right to environment um uh, has been sort of built up uh, in the supreme court anojan's book points out how there are dangers there and how the particular agenda can be uh, hijacked for a, a broader reason so there there are concerns uh, when it comes to those uh, kind of uh, uh, questions but i think what i'd said earlier also applies even when it comes to this classic role that judiciaries perform that when they set out why uh they they are intervening they need to ground their reasons uh in what legal scholars and, and lawyers certainly understand uh as as um proper sources of authority right uh and 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 that needs to be there. so i think co- commentators have been saying for uh, well over a decade now that that's an area where the court 
uh, is performing quite poorly in, in offering uh, justification for its decisions. And that's why uh, uh, academic scholars have been quite critical uh, of the court uh, over the last decade or so, even where they may agree with the, the result that is being uh, advanced. Uh, the fact that the reasoning is not set out clearly then makes it very difficult for subsequent courts also to build on that. Yeah, uh, I think I'll stop here. I'm sure Anuj has other things to uh, add to your question, Jent. Yes, yeah. Um, Anuj, if you can have the last word on this. Yeah, I think, um, just carrying on from what Arun said, I think this way of thinking about the court in terms of whether it's helping um, you know, uh, certain groups or not I think unless it's translated in, in constitutional terms in a way that Arun just did in the classic, um, you know, terms of comparative constitutional thought of counter-majority in, uh, you know, that, that the court is acting in a way uh, to, uh, you know, to show solicitude for discrete and, and insular minorities who, who are obviously not going to be electorally as, as influential. As long as it's argued in those terms, it makes sense. But the but we haven't seen any particular trends of that kind. In fact, what I would say is that, that, that of course, uh, the, the Johar judgment is welcome, but actually the way the court has acted is perhaps more in line with its previous judgment on 377. That was the, um, the infamous judgment from 2013 uh, on, uh, you know, Kaushal versus Naj, where it, where it called the LGBT communities, you know, a minuscule minority. And that... Um, mm. uh, uh, fortunately, was superseded by this 2018 decision, but that's unfortunately, you know, um, as much in line with the, with, with the court's um, views on 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 such a group. So, so I would say in general that <clears throat> going further about what Arun was saying, <clears throat> that when we look at um, court's role, uh, we have to think of it more institutionally. We have to think about how it grounds. Its decision in terms of its reasoning, and uh, you know we have to look at, at its politics not just in terms of outcomes, but in terms of its process. And process includes not, not only how it, uh, who it hears, and how it hears, but also uh, how it, it it decides in terms of its its, its reason, etc. So, in all of that, if we uh, if we do not uh, if 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 we do not see a more um, you know more judicious uh, judicial uh, behavior by, by, by the court, then, you know, these would be one of instances where we may be happy with a particular distance or not. Um, so I, I really think that we have to move the debate away um, in thinking about the court um, in, in, in terms of uh, in thinking more institutionally, as well as, um, um, you know, not thinking in terms of only in terms of the, the caste, class, gender, religion, etc. Aspects of who it favors or who it's not, but it really in in which, which is what you know, uh, kind of a, a crude sociological analysis of such decisions often is. But really, in in, in the court, the way how the uh, the court has gone about this entire process. Okay, and just as we are ending this podcast, we've covered a lot of uh, complex issues in this discussion. And uh, since you're both academics and you referred to lots of um, writing, lots of uh, lots of ju- legal judgments in the course of this conversation, uh, for people who want to sort of follow this question further, because it's very much um, in the news right now, and just want to understand the larger history of this, um, can I ask you both to just suggest some some reading that people can turn to? Sure. Um, so, Jayant, I'll, uh, I'll go first. Uh, I would say that people who want to understand. Uh, the longer history of uh, the Indian Supreme Court, uh, 
would be advised to look at, um, there's a range of works and, and maybe Anuj and I will quickly list out a few. Uh, so I would say that uh, the things to read would be the two books by George Gadboy. Um, they're both published by Oxford University Press. Uh, and, and Gadboy uh, is actually a great uh, historian of the court. Uh, he goes back, his first book uh, published with OUP is on the federal court. Uh, which was the predecessor of the Supreme Court of India uh, and was in existence from 1937 uh, to 1950. Uh, then he has a book about the judges of the Supreme Court, uh, which is from 1950 to 1989, where he covers the broad history uh, of the court uh, and, and, and tells us how there were, there were uh, debates about um, uh, during the various uh, chief justices who uh, were in power from 1950 to 1989. So the two books by George Gadboy. Um, I would also suggest uh, Daniel Austin's second book, which is less cited, Working a Democratic Constitution, uh, which uh, takes us in a very pithy and succinct fashion through the great constitutional battles uh, that, that Anuj referred to earlier uh, in the 50s, 60s and 70s. Um, there's, there's been a lot of recent writing, uh, a very uh, uh, interesting book written in a, a very accessible format uh, is a book by an, a, a lawyer called Gobind Das, Supreme Court in Quest of Identity, uh, published by Eastern Book Company. Uh, its second edition in 2000 tries to cover about 50 years uh, of the court. Uh, as, as Anuj will agree, this is actually a great time for constitutional scholarship. Uh, there are a range of recent books uh, which uh, talk about uh, the constitution and, and the role of the court. Uh, I will briefly mention three, uh, Gautam Bhatia's uh, Transformative Constitution, which also uh, is, is a good uh, resource for the last question you asked, Jayant, where uh, have there been instances of uh, courts uh, stepping up and acting quite actively to protect particular uh, groups and particular rights? Uh, so the Transformative Constitution is making a broader argument also about uh, what, what was so unusual about the Indian constitution. Uh, there's, there's also Rohit Day's uh, recent book called The People's Constitution, uh, which has been um, you know, uh, hailed as uh, really presenting an unusual uh, and uh, a neglected perspective on uh, the Indian Supreme Court. Um, for those interested in uh, also understanding what was so dramatic about the Indian constitution, I would recommend Madhav Khosla's uh, recent book, on India's constitutional founding. Um, so yeah, that, that's a very quick uh, list and probably uh, missing out on others, but I'm sure Anuj will um, uh, be able to supplement that very well. Um, yeah, Anuj? Yes, uh, I think uh, the list of books that Arun has recommended is quite useful. I think for beginners in particular, I think starting with Arun's own book, uh, re uh, recent book, uh, Constitution of India's Contextual Analysis is, would be a great starting point. It's uh, probably the most up-to-date introductory text of, of that kind. Um, Granville Austin's uh, framing, of course, is the classic text on the Constitutional Assembly debates and still probably the best of its kind. Um, that, that would be, um, I think, irreplaceable still. Um, then there is a recent book on B.N. Rao uh, by Arvind Elangovan. Uh, B.N. Rao is a often, um, uh, you know, I mean, he, he's, he's, he was a particularly important figure at the framing of the Constitution and is perhaps not given as much importance in, in popular writing about the Constitution as he deserves. He would he would be a, a very important uh, scholar to pay more attention to. I mean, as Arun said, this is a period of a kind of a um, renaissance in 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 constitutional scholarship. There's a lot of interesting work that is uh, that that gets published uh, 
almost every year at this point. So, you know, it's... Uh, and uh, for comparative constitutional uh, perspective, Rand Herschel's work on, on, on judicialization of politics would be... Um, and his book, Do, Towards, Towards Judistocracy, would be very useful to get a comparative sense. Uh, f- also because we tend to be kind of insular in India, but there are actually quite similar um, uh, trends in, in the region, in particular in Pakistan. Um, uh, Mariam Khan's uh, uh, and uh, Osama Siddiqui's work on on uh, um, the, the politics of the judiciary in Pakistan would be particularly interesting to follow uh, for uh, for in, in observers of Indian constitutional behavior. All right. Okay, that's a good place to end, I think. And I think we'll wrap up this conversation there. I'd like to thank you both for making time for uh, the Hindus Parley podcast today. And thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jeff. This was a pleasure.